Question. What do you think happened to the body of Jesus? And how does that tally with the accounts of the resurrection? Answer. Presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, so answered the prominent atheist Richard Dawkins. He was responding to a question posed to him by a reader of the independent newspaper in December the 4th, thousand. And six. And while perhaps more brutal in his language than others who share his view, Dawkins nonetheless sums up a widely held view. It's the opinion that Jesus not only died, as everyone who lives is destined to die, but that quite like everyone else, Jesus' dead body decomposed in the tomb. And that therefore the accounts of Jesus' resurrection have absolutely no historical basis whatsoever. There's as much authenticity as Jack and the Beanstalk, a fairy tale. Now, let it be said that Dawkins is entitled to his opinion. And you, whoever you are, whichever angle you're coming from, are entitled to your opinion. But before we just go along with the dismissive claim that the primary sources to Jesus' resurrection are fictitious, it is only fair to consider the primary sources themselves. And so this is exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to turn to one of the primary sources, Luke's Gospel. And we're going to ask the question, does this account have a ring of truth about it? Or does it sound more like a fairy tale that somebody made up? So let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, please. We've been studying Luke's Gospel for quite a while now, under the theme, Good News of Great Joy for All People. And as we come to chapter 24, we arrive at the climax of the good news. Jesus has died on Friday He has died for the sins of the world. He has been buried in a tomb before the Sabbath sundown on the Friday evening. And he is laid there until we pick it up in verse 24, where we find that he has risen, just as he said. Verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared And went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering, perplexed about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, 
The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Amen. So, are the critics right? Do the accounts of Jesus' resurrection ring about as true as Jack and the Beanstalk? Is the biblical account obviously exaggerated, evidently manufactured, and clearly contrived? Well, as we saw to begin with, that is certainly the accusation. However, I would submit to you this morning, as we study one of these original accounts, and indeed as this week I have afresh studied this gospel and what it has to say, I for one have found it striking, the note of authenticity that we find here. Far from being an evident fabrication, to the contrary, This report has all the hallmarks of reliability and dependability. And my goal this morning is simply to draw your attention to three evidences of authenticity. The authenticity of this account. I share this with you not only for your historical interest, but rather so that you might take this account seriously and the implications of its truth. For your life. So what are some of the hallmarks of authenticity? Well there are three exhibits if you like. Which Luke presents. And which together build a strong case. For a genuine account. Exhibit A. Exhibit A is found in verses 1 to 4. And it is the mystifying discovery. One reason you see. Why this account rings true. Is that when Jesus followers. First discovered the empty tomb. They did not immediately celebrate it. Nor did they magnify God because of it. Praise the Lord. Initially, they were mystified by it. Bewildered. The language used in verse 4 is they were left wondering. In fact, it's probably an even stronger word than this. They were perplexed. Puzzled. Friends, The resurrection of Jesus wasn't something that even his closest followers suspected or expected. When his first evidences appeared, they were totally confounded, completely surprised. They were utterly stupefied. And if you doubt that, just look with me at the opening verses. Because even the very activity through which the discovery occurs speaks to this lack of prospect. Now, what were the women doing, according to verse 1? Well, they were heading to the tomb. And what were they taking to the tomb on that Sunday morning? Well, they were carrying spices to the tomb. 
And what was it that they were taking the spices to the tomb for? Answer, to anoint a dead body. Moreover, to anoint a dead body, which they expected to remain in the tomb for some time. See, the whole point of taking spices was that the expectation was that the bodies would decompose and the spices would help to counteract the stench in the months that lay ahead. See, these women don't have a clue what they are in for. People sometimes suggest that early Christians manufactured the notion of Jesus' resurrection. The truth is, they couldn't even begin to conceive of it. All they expected to find that morning was the same body which they'd seen crucified on Friday. Which they'd seen die on Friday. All they expected to find that morning was the same body which they had watched being buried in this prominent, well-known tomb. All they expected in the dim morning light was to discover the stone in place and the body present. But what they discovered... What they discovered was an open and empty tomb. By the way, God is so often gracious in this way. These women, they were just carrying out a labor of love, a little faithful act of service. And how frequently in our little labors of love does God meet us with great rewards? Because these women were faithful in their service, expecting to give, not to get, they were the first human witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And they stumbled upon this open, empty tomb, which must have been doubly surprising for them. First, because the tomb itself just should not have been open that day. Why, the Gospels record that a Roman guard had been drafted in to protect the tomb. Under Rome's orders, an elite guard had sealed the tomb and they had further been commanded to secure the tomb 24-7 on the threat of their lives if they failed to protect it. So let me ask, would you expect to find the tomb open? And the huge stone rolled away. But this is doubly surprising. Not only was it open, as they come to the open door and as they step down, into the tomb itself. Secondly, they discover that the body is not present. That the tomb is empty. The corpse that had been laid there on Friday was no longer there. And you know, the body of Jesus was never found. Verse 3, when they entered, they did not find the body. Later, when the apostles proclaimed Jesus' resurrection, you can read about this in the book of Acts, when the apostles testify that Jesus not only died for our sins, but was raised to life to give us life, what do the enraged authorities do? Well, they despise the resurrection claim. And they deny the resurrection claim. But the one thing they cannot do is disprove the resurrection claim. Because you see, there is no body to be found. There is no corpse of Jesus that they can wheel out and say, here he is. It's all been a hoax. The body is missing. It's still missing. Dear friends, the facts are in. The tomb was open and the tomb is empty. And what are we to make of it this morning? 
I mean, really, it, it should leave you wondering today. The facts of the open and empty tomb demands explanation. And it's not easy to see what it is at a human level. One of the reasons this account rings true is that the woman's response recognizes this. For them, it's a perplexing problem. Tim Keller uh, has written an excellent new book for non-Christians. It's a little bit like C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, more up to date. And if you're not a Christian, I recommend this. You can get this off the internet or on some of the shops. It's selling really well. It's called The Reason for God. And he deals with a lot of questions that non-Christians have. But Tim Keller, he writes a chapter in the resurrection and he makes a, a great point, this point. He says, most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened. That is not completely the case. The resurrection also puts the burden of proof on its unbelievers. It is not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternative explanation for the birth of the church. Dear non-Christian friend, can I say to you that the empty tomb is a problem you must reckon with and that you must solve? How do you explain it? What, what is your solution? As a Christian, I know what my explanation is. It maybe seems impossible to you, but it's an explanation that I believe Scripture teaches. What's your explanation? Do you think that a bunch of fearful, untrained disciples really overhauled an elite fighting force and broke into the tomb? Do you think that the Roman authorities simply moved the body and reburied it somewhere else? Even although the absent body was precisely their problem in the ongoing things that then ensued. Or do you suppose that Jesus merely swooned on the cross, that he actually didn't die on the cross, and that the crucified Jesus somehow managed to push open the tomb door by himself? I mention these incidentally because these are the popular counter-proposals. And at least to me, frankly, they don't seem very credible. What is the biblical answer? What is the Bible's explanation? Well, it comes from the mouth of the angels. And it's our second exhibit for why I believe this account has a smack of authenticity. Exhibit B is the memorable explanation. Now, thankfully for the women, there wasn't much time to remain perplexed. Verse 4 tells us that suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Other Gospels tell us that they were angels. And no wonder in the dim morning light, the angels' appearance is terrifying. Their clothes are as bright as lightning. But the appearance of the angels is not really the focus. It's the announcement that comes through the angels. There's a lot of fascination with angels today. But angels rarely appear in the Bible. And when angels do appear, they don't come simply to dazzle us. They come to reveal God's truth and convey his message to us. And the truth that they revealed this morning was utterly unprecedented and staggering. They said, in essence, that Jesus, once dead, is now 
alive. Verse 5, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? The angels say to them, in effect, you're at the wrong address. At least if you're looking for Jesus. Because living people live among the living. And dead people lie with the dead. But the living don't live among the dead. The tomb is no longer Jesus' home address. He is not here. He is risen. Hallelujah. He is not here. That first part they knew. The second part they did not know. That was revelation. Oh, they understand he is not here. What he didn't know was why. That was their perplexing problem. But praise God, the angels give the solution. And the answer is not he has been moved. The answer is not he has been transferred. The answer is not he has somehow survived crucifixion. The answer is he's alive. He has risen. More precisely, they say, he has been raised. He has been raised. The phrase is passive. Someone has raised Jesus. Jesus hasn't raised himself. Jesus has been resurrected. And by whom? Who gives life to the dead? Who else gives birth and rebirth? But God raised him from the dead. Acts 2.24 The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 5.30 In Acts 13.34 we read of the fact. The fact that God raised him from the dead. And in Acts 10 and 9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. God did this. Friends, this is impossible for man. It's not impossible for God. It's the impossible possibility. It's divinely possible. Human beings can't do this. Human beings have never done this, resurrect the dead. Human beings will never do this. We can kill and make dead. We can develop medicines and prolong life and postpone death, but we cannot raise the dead. God can. And God has. And when he raised Jesus, God the Father vindicated the work of his beloved Son. And he declared that Jesus sacrificed on the cross for our sins. For your rebellion against God and mine. That this sacrifice was sufficient to save. And by his resurrecting act. God declared Jesus to be the son of God with power. In weakness no longer. But in power and glory he was raised. And this morning. Today. Through the angel. Through Luke's account. And now through my explanation. God announces it again. He is not here. He is not there. He's risen. Now, what is wonderful, one of the things I love about God's word is that while it is announcement, it also appeals to our reason as well. It is revelation, but it appeals to our reason. And this is the bit that really smacks of authenticity for me. Did you notice the angel's appeal, which points to Jesus' past predictions? 
And which says, remember, things that Jesus said in the past, which are now being fulfilled in the present. Verse 6, remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. You see, Jesus in the past foretold the present. The angel wasn't making this up. The women could remember these details themselves. And they remember, for instance, back in chapter 9. In chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, verse 22. Jesus, months before in Galilee, had predicted this very same thing. Here's what he said, Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And what is most remarkable about this prediction, I think it's the reason why the angel refers to it, is that Jesus gave it while he was still in Galilee. Right? This was months before and miles away. This was when Jesus was in the peaceable surroundings of Galilee, when the hostility of Jerusalem seemed far off. And it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, prediction of his death and resurrection. And it is explicit. Jesus predicted it at many other times as well. But the angel said, this is amazing, just remember back, way back to Galilee. Jesus talked with you about this. No doubt when Jesus had first made the statement, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But Jesus knew. And now as the women stand in a different context, not by the shore of Galilee, but outside an empty tomb, the penny begins to drop. Jesus' words begin to be understood. And they are being fulfilled today on the third day. You know, this should give us pause and remind us of at least a couple of things. First, these prior predictions remind us that Easter was planned. Easter was planned. We've seen this emphasis time and again in Luke's Gospel, haven't we? That nothing, from the Garden of Gethsemane to the Judgment Hall, from the cross on Friday to the empty tomb on Sunday, was not predicted was not planned, and was not understood. Months before, when Jesus was in Galilee, he spoke of it. He knew it. And he went to Jerusalem, and he willingly embraced it. What a God we have, fellow believer. The seeming chaos of Easter, from the gore of Friday to the glory of Sunday morning, is planned. And under God's sovereign control, to save us from our sins. Let me add something also specifically for Christians. Brothers and sisters, we must learn from this memorable explanation that we should wield constantly the fulfilled words of Jesus as we parry the objections of the skeptic and as we encourage the shaky faith of the doubter. Jesus' fulfilled predictions must be our central apologetic and our main aid of assurance as we proclaim the resurrection. I mean, the angel doesn't get all scientific, does he? 
Right? The, reason, the angel doesn't reason through all sorts of logical arguments, though there are imperious arguments for the resurrection. The angel simply reminds them of the bare words of Jesus. And he says, what Jesus promised in the presence of many witnesses, look, it's being fulfilled. The tomb's empty, third day. In our context, we would say, the angel points them to Scripture. Charlotte Chapel, that's what we must be doing. As we encourage people regarding the resurrection, we must do so with our Bibles open. The Bibles are our main apologetic tool. And the Bibles are essential encourager as we help those who are feeling on shaky ground. To see in the pages of Holy Writ that that which was passed on of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, was according to the Scriptures. And to see that his burial and that his being raised on the third day, as Peter quoted from 1 Corinthians, was according to the Scriptures. That is a bedrock for us. It was all predicted before it even happened. The fulfillment of Jesus' words. For me, this fact alone gives this account the ring of truth. But there's a third reason why this account smacks of authenticity. And we'll finish with this. Exhibit C is the mixed reaction. The mixed reaction. Again, this is... Something you you wouldn't expect if this account were doctored. If this were fabricated, I would expect something a little less messy than this. This is very messy. What we have here feels more credible, more human, more real. Because as a woman now leave the tomb, and they go back to relay the news to the apostles and to the other disciples, there is a mixed reaction, mainly a skeptical one. Let's just begin with the women. There's actually three reactions. The women's response is communication. Communication. We're not told by Luke whether or not they believed, in fact, in the message, the report. That may be implied from other Gospels. But Luke simply focuses on this, that the women told the news what they had seen and what they had heard to the eleven and the others. Verse 9. They told all these things to the eleven and the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. So these women, why? They have an absolutely unique place in human history. I wonder if they realize this. They were the first human witnesses of the empty tomb, and now they become the first tellers of the resurrection. But while they're the first human tellers... It's an important little comment here. They won't be the last, of course. The angels come, first of all, with the initial announcement. But from here on in, it's going to be human beings who take the message out. These women will pass the news on to the men. The men, as typically, perhaps, were a bit slow. But eventually, they would also take it out to the world, to the ends of the earth. Can I say to you this morning, if you are a Christian, I wonder this Easter, is there anyone within your circle who has not been told about the resurrection of Jesus? You may say, I'm not good at going out and telling the world. Well, these women didn't tell the world. They just told those they knew their close circle. Is there anyone in your network of friends, acquaintances, work colleagues, family, who have not heard that Jesus 
died for them and that he has risen to life and that he's calling them to come in faith. That's your job. That's your job to do something about that even this week. These women are a great example. They tell what they know to who they know. And yet, as so often happens, they're met with a negative response. If you're ever discouraged in your evangelism, remember this, that even the apostles didn't originally believe the message when the gospel was shared with them. So that's encouraging, isn't it? The apostles' immediate reaction is rejection. It sounds to them like nonsense. It's not so much that they don't want to believe. They cannot believe this. It doesn't make logical sense. See, Jesus' closest followers were just as skeptical as you and I naturally are. You know, they're not something out of the Stone Age with no intellectual independence of their own. That's often what we think. But later, as the evidence builds, and there's much more to come, it becomes incontrovertible to them that this is true. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus yet. Well, you're in good company. And watch out, because you might just get converted, as the apostles did not long after this. What I'm asking you today, if you're not a, a, a believer today, is that you will commit to investigating this further. That you will look into this further. That's what Peter did. This is the third response. Peter investigated the matter. While the other apostles sat around incredulous and unbelieving, Peter gets up, And he runs to the tomb and he checks it out for himself. And he goes away, not believing, it doesn't seem, but wondering. Just like the woman, initially, when they went to the tomb and saw it empty, he was perplexed. He was confused. Again, the resurrection is a problem to be solved. It's not something you can just shrug your shoulders and, and never think about again. Peter went away. He began to wonder. And he began to ponder and he began to examine the evidence more fully. And that's what I want to encourage you to do today, dear non-Christian friend. What would be the best way to go about that? Maybe that is your position this morning. Well, first of all, I would encourage you to simply read through a gospel. There are four gospel accounts. The gospels are simply the, the books that describe the good news about Jesus. His life, right through to his death. And then his resurrection from the dead. And I encourage you to read that. Not just the death and resurrection, but the whole thing. And to ask yourself, does this ring true? Is this an authentic account? Many people have been skeptical and read through a gospel and come out thinking very differently when they actually read it. There are also some very good books written on the resurrection which defend it on the basis of Scripture. And one of the more accessible ones is this book by Lee Strobel. It's called The Case for Easter. And he looks at some of the biblical evidence and also some of the historical evidence. And I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to investigate this more fully. At least give it that kind of respect and look into this. I've actually got two copies of this book. And if you would read this, if you would take it away and you would genuinely read it, Take the copies away and keep them and read them. I want to encourage you to investigate this more fully as Peter did and as he continued to do. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't need any more evidence. Uh, You can read and read and read into all sorts of things and put off a choice. I want to encourage you today on this 
Resurrection Sunday. What a day to do it. To put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To stop living independently for yourself. And start living for God. For Christ. Recognizing that Jesus died. To give you access into a relationship with God. And trusting in him from here on in. Until we die. With the hope that Jesus will one day raise us from the tomb. Just as he's been raised. We began this sermon with a quote from a militant atheist. And a respected source in those circles. Decrying the resurrection of Jesus. Dawkins claims that Jesus' body simply decomposed in a tomb we haven't found. And that the resurrection accounts have as much authenticity as a fairy tale. What is your conclusion now? I trust this morning that we've seen together that Jesus' resurrection is no fairy tale. The documents themselves possess a remarkable ring of truth. In Luke's case, the mystifying discovery, the memorable explanation, and the mixed reactions at least have, even if you don't believe what they're conveying, it has the marks of an authentic account, doesn't it? Early in 2005, another well-known atheist, Anthony Flew, shocked the academic world when he announced he had willfully suspended disbelief. He was one of the most famous atheists around. And though he's now not a Christian, he moved from a position of atheism, no God, to deism, a distant God. And one of the factors that made him change his mind was considering the evidence for the resurrection. He read a book by N.T. Wright, a Christian scholar, which is an excellent defense of the historical basis of the resurrection. And here's what he said, a very different perspective to Dawkins, and an extremely intelligent man. I would strongly recommend to you the contribution of the present Bishop of Derby, that's N.T. Wright, who offers the most powerful case for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, which I have ever seen. Evidently, you can be an intelligent person and still believe in the evidence of the resurrection. But at the end of the day, it's also something which should warm our hearts and change our lives. That Jesus Christ died for our sins on Friday and rose to give his life on Sunday morning. Praise his name. Let's pray.